Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert. I'm Dax Randall Shepard. I'm joined by Monica Lily Padman. Hi there. Hello there. We got one of my previous bosses on today. That's right. Did you feel like you you needed to like you know be a good employee for him? In the when I worked for him, indeed. Yeah. Which was actually a fun experience to meet him as. I guess a peer. Yeah. I don't even want to call him a peer, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Usually I'm like, you're in charge. I got to make a great impression on this guy so I don't get fired. But uh, this time it was just like, hey, you're going to see real me. And it was so much fun. What a nice person. It's it's almost impossible what a nice person he is. It's really incredible. And he has one of the most incredible Hollywood stories there are. Yeah. Uh, Ron Howard is an Academy Award winning film director, producer, and actor. He's directed A Beautiful Mind, Apollo 13, Frost Nixon, Cinderella Man, The Da Vinci Code, Parenthood, ding, 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 and Arrested Development. He has a new book out called The Boys, A Memoir of Hollywood and Family by Ron and Clint Howard. And this book is so fun because they unpack their upbringing that seemed normal to them, yet was anything but from a newfound perspective of time and success. He's got great stories, and it was such a pleasure to talk to him, and I just adore him. And you will, too, so please enjoy Ron Howard. We are supported by Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can do much more than build a website. You can also sell custom merch. Guys, this is what we do on Squarespace. We have a merch team, and we offer it all on a website beautifully built by WobbyWob on Squarespace. Simply design your products, and production, inventory, and shipping are all handled for you. With Squarespace, it doesn't matter what you sell, physical goods, digital products, services, they have all the tools you need to start selling online. Just take one of their professional website templates, then customize the look, update the content, and add features to fit your unique needs. You can make any Squarespace template do what you want so you can stand out online on any device. For a free trial, just head to squarespace.com slash DAX. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code DAX to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. Look, it's been about six years I've been starting my day with the nutritional secret weapon of AG1. It's been my go-to for support in five vital areas of health, energy, gut health, hormonal, and neural support, and... Ding, 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 I'm old, healthy aging. And let me share a little secret about AG1. They've spent over a decade dedicated to creating a high-quality foundational nutrition supplement. And quality for AG1 isn't just a buzzword. It's a commitment backed by expert-led scientific research, high-quality ingredients, industry-leading manufacturing, and rigorous testing. At each step of the process, AG1 goes above and beyond industry standards. I definitely feel that I have more energy after I drink it. Yeah, I just feel overall stable. Yeah, you're getting it all at once. AG1 is designed for real people with real lives. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com DAX. That's drinkag1.com DAX. Check it out. He's an armchair expert. Oh, <laughs> I was getting a little work done. Sorry about that. <laughs> I was getting we little... may have learned more about you in the last 40 seconds than we will in the next hour. <laughs> it's great to see you. How you doing? So good. So good to see you. Was that personal stuff or work stuff? That was work stuff. 
work stuff. Getting ready to do a rough cut screening of my latest movie. And I was asking a few friends if I could send them a link and get their feedback. So, And after 740 movies and <laughs> awards and whatnot, is the um, that initial screening process, does it get any less daunting? No, probably worse. I call it the gauntlet of judgment that begins. Mm, it yeah. starts with the, the friends and family screening. Then it goes to the test screening crowd. Of course, the studio's in there in the mix. Then it goes all the way to the critics. And it's all agony because all you want is just for them to at least really like it. I mean, come on. Yes. And, yeah. Yes. And, and, and most of them tend to, but there's always those uh, naysayers. Well, let me ask you, what do you find to be more productive, the friends and family or the recruited audience screening? I'm finding the friends and family. Really? Well, because I think friends and family know that I really would like the help. I really want the help. I just don't want a pat on the back. And I usually conduct my own little discussion afterwards where yeah. I'm sort of imploring people to please just tell me. I don't want to find out what I read the newspaper. I want to know now uh-huh. when I can maybe do, still do something uh, about it. The best of all of these was a test screening of Apollo 13. And this was before digital, before visual effects were something you could sort of rapidly build into a cut. And we tested it and nobody, nobody knew much about it. It, it was also an era when you would just sort of spring a movie on a test audience. They wouldn't right, even know right. what they were going in to see. So in this yeah. case, it was Apollo 13 with a, a, a still storyboards in it and of space. And, but it tested great. It was, it was so exciting. And I, I remember looking at it. And it was like, I don't know, 385 cards. And literally 375 were just fantastic. Sort of eight or nine were okay. And one was rated it poor. You know, they're asked to rate it excellent, <laughs> very good, good, fair, poor. Poor. And so naturally that's the one I had to read. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right yeah, away. yeah, yeah. It's the only one that confirmed everything you feared about yourself. <laughs> that, that, that's always it. And, but I looked at it, and I remember a 24-year-old Caucasian male. Didn't have a lot to say, no. but it was all negative with these bold <laughs> pencil strokes and exclamation marks, two or three of them. And didn't say a lot, just rated it poor, wouldn't recommend it. Finally, on the back page, it said, please, any comments on the ending? And he said, terrible, three exclamation marks. More <laughs> Hollywood bullshit, four exclamation marks. <laughs> they would never survive, five exclamation oh marks. Oh, my. And I realized, okay, well, th- this guy didn't, uh, he didn't know it was a true story. And that's the beauty of telling true stories, is you pick stuff that you couldn't get away with in fiction, and then you, and then you dramatize that. Oh man, that makes me so think funny. of someone someone sharing with me the link of someone re-recorded a Metallica song and then someone, uh, the point being, yeah, like what they were critical of, they didn't even realize it was a remake of a thing. They don't know anything they're talking about, but they, they give a masterclass on- <laughs> I just ripped it. What's, what's wrong with this genre and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. Hey, how are you? It's so good to see you, man. I know, uh, it's so yeah, good to I'm see you. I'm seeing you, you over, the, over the Zoom, and uh, which is better than nothing. And very nice to, to meet you. Hello, how are Monica. you? Monica. Nice. Esteemed host, 
are you in LA? I'm in London. Fuck, we could have put a pin in this. We're going to be there in two weeks. Oh, really? Monica and I for yeah, for a few weeks. Yeah. We're going to be interviewing people. Oh, excellent. Yes, we could have. Yeah. But instead, maybe I'll recruit you for a rough cut friends and family screening if you're around. Okay, so having been now in LA for 26 years, having been involved in this business, I've both attended many yes. as a friend or a family, right. and then I've, I've hosted them for movies of I've course. made. Of course. And I gotta say, it can go a lot of ways because <laughs> what you are also getting with friends and families that you're not getting with a recruited audience of strangers is personal baggage. Like, A, yeah. <laughs> most of my friends and family <laughs> aspire to do this thing as well. So they yeah. all have some relationship with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it's gratitude or resentment or whatever it is. Yeah. And also everyone in LA is a director. Right. You know, everyone has a, and they do, they have a much better understanding yeah. of story and whatnot yeah. than your average viewer, but they can get carried away. And I've seen a lot of these things really go off the rails and the interpersonal stuff. <laughs> I mean, look, my motto about all that is you've got to kind of hear everybody, but listen to yourself. All it is supposed to do is inspire you or your closest colleagues to sort of say, oh, that person is saying something that I get. It rings a bell yep. and I, we, I didn't quite know how to address it, but that person is addressing it in a way that I find helpful. Part two is a really genuine consensus. Like, right, yeah. that's you know, super valuable. You know, yes. like, oh, wow, half the people are confused about something or didn't know the character's name or or their relationship to somebody else or whatever the confusion might be. That's really what I'm looking for. I feel like it'd be hard to have a screening in L.A. because there's so many people and the bigger you are as a director, I feel like oh, everyone's just going to try to impress you on the car. It's like okay. someone, everyone in there is like, oh, maybe he'll recognize that I'm <laughs> like, I should be his first AD or something. Like, like everyone wants yeah. your yeah. approval too. Yeah. Your inciting incident is coming in real too. And I really think it should be coming in <laughs> exactly. half of the real you, well, you, you do get that with <laughs> test screenings in Los Angeles. Even the broad, yeah. you, you know, whether wherever it is in the greater Los Angeles area, it's a crowd with people who've, Read a couple of screenwriting books. They <laughs> watched a couple of master classes. Maybe they made some short films, at least. They're armed with opinions. I, I think that's what's really valuable about trying to take the films elsewhere. But look, almost anywhere that you show them, you learn something. I tell the story in the book Clinton I did, The Boys. The Boys. And which is really just about our childhood. And it's, it starts off when we began acting and my segment kind of ends with the first movie that I directed, which was Grand Theft Auto for, for Roger Corman. And that was my first test screening, but Roger Corman was so cheap that he wouldn't have a normal test screening. First, he wouldn't let us add any music. It was a black and white work print with just, it, and this was a car crash movie, you know, and a lot of it was just <laughs> kind of silent. It was just terrible and almost impossible to watch. But Roger made a deal so that he could go to ASI, you know, the place where they test pilots and you have a dial. And people uh -huh. who are, if you're liking it, you turn the dial to the right. And if you don't like it, you turn it to the left. I think the system is more or less still in, you know, functions. And for TV, right? For, for TV Primarily, and TV yeah. commercials. Yeah. A lot of like, yeah, you know, do yeah. I like the product or do I not like ah. the product? And on days when they didn't have a, a pilot or, a t or an episode or anything to show or a movie, it was only commercials. It, Roger was allowed to bring his movies in because people would be a little annoyed if all they did was sort of look at, at commercials. So yeah, yeah. we walked in, we're going we're gonna to test this movie. It's my first movie as a director. It's this kind of rude 
as kind of as rude as you could be in, in 1977, kind of this rude car crash comedy, very low budget, kind of zany, certainly for a young audience. We walk in there and I'm telling you, even in 1977, it was all blue haired ladies, and, uh-huh. you know, and because uh-huh. the commercial was Geritol. And I said to Roger, this is not our audience, Roger. He said, a laugh is a laugh. And lo and behold, we did actually- You did all right. We learned something and they did laugh. So I think people kind of can't help themselves and they do sort of reveal themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Several of those ladies who were sitting right in front of us were- laughing their heads off at like people getting kicked in the nuts and like the stuff that you would think. Uh-huh. And, when it was, and, when it, and when it was over, they stood up and they said, well, that was just rude and despicable and walked out. <laughs> yeah. But they'd been laughing like right along yes. with everybody else. Uh, so. Yeah, I love that. Before I wrap up the screening thing, I just want to know, have you over your career had an ace in your sleeve? Is there someone you most reach out to? Like, you know, they'll help you crack the solution. Do you have a peer? I have several writer pals who are just incredible. One is Lowell Gans, who did Parenthood, Night Shift, Splash, along with Bob Blue Mandel. He's just got a great editorial mind, fantastic. Another one is Akiva Goldsman, who is a sure, writer, wrote director. Beautiful Mind. Wrote right. Beautiful Mind, and has been working on the Star Trek series for the last couple of years and writing and directing. And uh, David Kep, another screenwriting pal of mine. I, the guy I was texting with is Peter Morgan, who does The Crown. I've done a couple of his movies mm. that he wrote. He's brilliant in the editing room, brilliant and willing to do this for me. So I've got some really bright friends who are willing to do that, and they don't hold back, but they actually do know what's practical. They've all directed as well. Yeah. Okay. So what's normally can be cumbersome for guests is that I want to talk about their childhood. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of like, uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. My, yes, my dad did that. Right. Yeah. 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 My mom did famously jump off a bridge. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, but in your case, you are here, which is so easy with a memoir of your childhood, which is right where I love to be talking uh, oh, to people well, about. Oh, well, here we go then. Yeah. So first and foremost, I think, and I don't know if other people have this sense of you, but you have a Midwestern vibe. And I don't think it's just whatever you absorb from the Andy Griffith show. No. I think they're like, you have some kind of like Midwestern stock. Yeah. I can feel it as a fellow Midwesterner. Yeah. And in fact, yes, you were born in Oklahoma? I was born in Duncan, Oklahoma, which was my mom's hometown. They refer to themselves, or at least they used to during her childhood, which might've been more the Boomtown days, as the buckle on the oil belt. Also the original home of Halliburton, Oh, no kidding. Mm. Yeah. And my dad was raised on farms back and forth between the Oklahoma and Kansas border, both Depression era kids, neither Dust Bowl uh, refugees, but they're products of that time. And but both with this dream of being in the movies, basically, somehow they made it happen. They had no right to make it happen, but they did and opened the way for my brother Clint and I. Yeah, so their mutual interest in Hollywood predate them being together. And in fact, like, did they meet in an acting class? They did meet in an acting class at OU. And Dennis Weaver, you remember Dennis Weaver? He was McLeod. And before that, he was Chester on Gunsmoke. And uh, he introduced them. Later, he starred as my brother's father in Gentle Ben. So uh, Dennis played a big factor in our family, in our family history. But yeah, dad just knew he didn't want to be a farmer. We talk about that a little bit in the book and his relationship with his own dad, which was dysfunctional, but not cruel. 
not mentally mm-hmm. a little bit cruel, but wasn't an abused kid. He certainly wanted to parent in a different way, and he he did. He broke a kind of a cycle there. But more than anything, he had this amazing imagination, and he decided he wanted to be a singing cowboy. Nobody told him he couldn't carry a tune. I mean, hopeless to, to the day <laughs> sure, he died. Sure. This so, is, we could all benefit from taking ourselves to a friends and family <laughs> training, <laughs> getting a little feedback, <laughs> just as people. And my mom loved it. And in fact, right out of high school, was accepted at the New York Academy of Dramatic Arts and went to New York. Family had a store and they weren't wealthy, but they, were, they had enough money to be able to send somebody away to school. She had a horrible accident, was hit by a truck, nearly died. <gasps> came back home, recovered, and then decided, okay, I'm not going back to New York, but I will go to OU, which was like, you know, 90 miles away from Duncan. And there they met, yes, in a scene class of some sort, fell in love. My dad felt like she had two or three guys interested in her. And uh, (laughs) one thing kind of led to another. I describe it in more detail, and so does my brother Clint in the book, but they ran away basically and they kind of joined the circus. Not the circus circus, but our circus and show business. And they came to Hollywood and what level of success did they have? And how were they supporting you guys before you were starting to make money? Acting, although my mom was a typist at CBS in the days when they before copy machines and whatnot, and she could really type. I mean, she was a dynamo. And they would also make money typing envelopes for a penny a piece for companies, uh, businesses and so forth. So they were constantly doing that sort of thing. But outside of right at the very, very beginning, kind of odd jobs, working as a theater usher or loading refrigerators and stuff like that, that my dad did early on, he was able to make a living acting. Now he never became a star. He was one of those guys that you sort of see his face and you recognize it from Chinatown or some sitcom or you just have just a Seinfeld. You've seen him. You don't know. You wouldn't necessarily know his name. And he did that all his life. But he was always a journeyman, always a journeyman, always struggling, always auditioning, always not getting as many parts as he wanted, playing the numbers game. And every 10 auditions, he'd maybe get a job, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so how much older are you than Clint? Five years. So what's so nice when I look at your thing from the outside is you seem to have always been so supportive and loving and outwardly praiseful of Clint. My brother's five years older than me, and we're we're like in a different century or something. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it says a lot about you that you would be five years older and also show such kindness Uh, (laughs) to your brother. That's rare. (laughs) Well, we'd wrestle and fight and carry on. And and, and of course, we're the only siblings in our family. My mom lost a child, stillborn baby before me. And that had an impact on her and on on the family in, in a lot of ways that resonated over the years. But we were close. And also, we did move around quite a bit. And we were working and sometimes on location and sometimes together on location. And these things really pulled us together. We're two very different dudes, ideologically, in terms of personalities. He's much more of an extrovert. I'm an introvert. It's very different. But we just always loved each other. And dad would sort of um, remind us of that. When we were having these spats, and of course, I was the big brother. We're supposed to be cool and never hurt the little guy. So I had that responsibility. Although he was hard to hurt. <laughs> he was tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, he looks like he'd keep coming. He did. He always did. I mean, with a laugh, a maniacal laugh. Maniacal. I mean, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but he said, you guys are going to grow up and you have a chance to be friends for the rest of your life. 
And if you do that, that's going to be a great thing. Now, it turns out that he was estranged, really, eventually and later in adulthood with his younger brother. And so I think he, even then, I think he was feeling some distance and sort of um, a longing in a way. I would also imagine for him, coming from Oklahoma, where there's a kind of tight-knit community, there's a safety net, there's probably an occupation you would inherit from your family. And now you guys are out here, and you have each other. It feels like the stakes would be higher if I was a parent coming from there, landing here. I'd be like, you guys, you know, you got to look out for one another. We're in a crazy dog-eat-dog city here. They loved it, and they both had this great outlook that while— of course, dad would have liked to have been Gary Cooper or, or something. And when mom retired from acting for a long time while we were being raised and then came back and kind of worked a ton on sitcoms, kind of like the, uh, I called her the new little old lady on the sitcom block. Uh-huh. She got all the neighbor parts and all that stuff. But they loved that they could actually make a living at this thing. And at mm-hmm. a certain point, they just embraced that, but they never really fully fit in. My mom coined this phrase, sophisticated hicks. And she felt like that's kind of what they had become. But they yeah, never yeah. were not hicks. And they never had that kind of life. mentality. You know, you should stop by her house. It's yeah. a beautiful, very coveted one-acre flat lots that I've parked 65 vehicles in. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so I can relate. Now, you started so young. So you get on Andy Griffith at six or maybe even got it at five and started yeah, yeah. at six. Some, mm-hmm. some, yeah, that's right. Was that instigated by you or did... Your parents say you should do this? How did, Well, where did the interest come from? I go into real detail in the book. The reason we did this about our childhood, by the way, came from, it really came from Tom Hanks because people have been asking me if I was going to do a book and uh, would I ever do it? And I didn't really want to, I certainly wouldn't want to do some kind of tell-all thing, you know, I, that would, would interest me. And I just didn't feel it. And I was talking to Hanks one day on the set and he said, just do your childhood. That's the strangest aspect of your life and the one people are most curious about. And it's great because you've had a terrific adult career. So, you know, like how did that happen? And he's the one who sold that idea. I put it away, still didn't do anything about it. And 18, 19 years later, our dad passed. And Clint and I were getting ready for the memorial. And in preparing the memorial and looking through the photos and doing all of that stuff, I told Clint what Hanks had said, and I said, should we do it together? Should we do our childhood? Because I can't separate mine from yours in a way. And it's a way to also help people understand the mostly good and not entirely wonderful things that our parents did, but mostly they really helped us navigate this thing. And so how did that happen? If I were you, but I'm sensitive and fragile, like I would have been for many years, I would have been like, I know. I know I was on those shows. Right. I direct these movies. It takes two years <laughs> of my life. It's very, very hard. Yeah. I, I know it's so exciting. I was on those shows, but uh, uh, onward. I've always felt that. And I feel it far less in the last decade or so than before. Now, now I view it as an unbelievably rare relationship that I I have with the business and I certainly have with fans. And now I appreciate it. Well, I'm going to freaking name drop right now. I did a I, doc- don't, I can't imagine you have a ton of friends that wouldn't be named right now. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's your life. Well, I did a documentary about the Beatles, eight days a week, it was called. And when we were promoting it, and I spent time with Sir Paul and Ringo and family and et cetera, and got to know them a bit. 
interviewed them a few times. And uh, once the movie was out, they both really liked it, which of course meant the world to me. And I was walking in a, in a publicity situation just down a hallway with McCartney. And he said, I'm really glad people are liking the film. I really like the film. And I don't think we could have done it up until about three or four years ago, because up until then, I didn't want to talk about it. I would. Mm. I knew I had to, but I didn't want yeah. to. And I turned a corner and suddenly I want to. As I was beginning to work on, on the book with Clint, I felt that. So yeah. here's the book. But to really answer your question, our parents, they recognized through my dad directing the summer stock productions and my mom helping out either acting or ushering or being the ticket woman or the wardrobe person or whatever she was doing to make these summer stock productions happen, that I was picking up on all the dialogue when I was like oh, around uh -huh. three. And they thought that was adorable. And so my dad cooked up a scene. My dad had been in the Broadway version of uh, Mr. Roberts and also on the road with Henry Fonda. And so that was his favorite show. And he would often direct that show in Summerstock. And so he cooked up the scene. He would play the Henry Fonda character from the movie in the play. And I would play Ensign Pulver, the Jack Lemmon character from the movie. <laughs> and we would do this scene and people would just get a huge kick out of it. And I kind of remember yeah. that. Well, can I quickly ask yeah. you, when you would do that, was that in front of five people or that was five. on stage? No, no, five okay. people. Okay. Living room entertainment. But I have like one memory of actually doing it in a living room and people laughing. And I, mm -hmm. that felt good. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, of course. So dad sort of stumbled into this opportunity where uh, he saw a bunch of kids being auditioned. And he just left a note saying, I have a son who's a fine actor. It's Rance Howard stopping by. He was wanted the casting director to just have his phone number and remember yeah. his name. And uh, they called back and they said, uh, well, bring your son in. So he did. And we did this scene from Mr. Roberts together. They said, do you think he can learn anything else? And my dad said, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but if Jack Lemmon gets <laughs> in the next movie. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in great shape. We're golden. So anyway, they gave him some sides and I, I, I did the scene. And he, he helped prepare me some very interesting ways. And which again, I sort, I sort of go into more detail into the book. But that was the key is I think he turned out to be kind of a genius at teaching a young mind how to connect with a character, not play act, not mm. be like a performing animal that looks adorable and cute. It was actually understanding what was going on. And my brother was writing about it as well. We both really, really felt that. And so in that initial audition, I think it was revealed that I had an aptitude for it. I think it was yeah. also revealed that he had a kind of a gift for in a gentle Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of way, bringing that sort of thing out of me and then later did the you. same thing with Clint. Yeah, yeah. Well, you must have thought this over the years. So my daughters are six and eight and your job as a parent is to gently right. nudge them places. If you tell them where to go, they ain't going there. So right. you, you really learn <laughs> yeah. how to work with these two actors, yes. really. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I have many times thought like, oh, I think I could really get them to do something. I would never do it, but I could see where your father probably had a wonderful shorthand yeah. with knowing exactly how to talk to you. Yeah. Once you got Andy Griffith, would, would he be around at all during Oh, a lot. Or oh, most a of, lot. Well, he was a freelance actor. So if okay. he got a job, he wasn't there. My mom would come. Right. He wasn't on a series. He wasn't getting right. 12 weeks on a movie. It was a week here and two days there. And otherwise, he was there. He and Andy, about the same age, hit it off. Oh. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Andy later told me, many years later, he said, you know, your dad came to me early on and said, they're writing Opie the way they write every sitcom kid. And the father-son relationship is this kind of wise-ass thing. I understand that works. But what if Opie actually respected his father? And he said, you know, he went to the writers and he said, let's write Opie Andy a little bit like Rance and Ronnie. So I'm always grateful for that, that Andy was willing to listen. And then my dad had the gumption to sort of actually speak up. Well, and also, if you think about what the appeal of that show is, I, I suppose there's many explanations, but one most certainly has to be like male wish fulfillment, that mm -hmm. you would be a man respected in your community and your mm -hmm. son would look up to you. Yeah. Uh, it's not yeah. something every dad yeah. has. <laughs> yeah. It certainly evolved. The other interesting thing about the show, which doesn't have that much to do with fathers and sons, is it is completely about a created family environment. Nobody's married. Oh. If you think about it, everybody lives in this town, but Barney doesn't have a wife, has a girlfriend. Andy's a, is a widower. Aunt B is coming to help. It's all about people finding the love and support they need from others. Yeah. And it's uh, uh, so unique in a lot of ways. Okay, so now I would imagine a lot of things are going to grow out of this crazy experience, crazy opportunity. One being you're not in school. Sometimes you're in school. Your brother at some age probably is aspiring to do the same thing. He never aspired, but at age two, he was <laughs> recruited. And, they, okay. and they, he showed up in a funny little, with his cowboy hat, and they put a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in his hand, and he wound up being a character on The Andy Griffith Show for, uh, he would play this <laughs> character, Leon, who was constantly trying to get Don Knotts, Barney Fife, to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he never, never said a word, but the regular every week director, Bob Sweeney, took over a show and brought Clint over into that. And Clint was a regular on that show at age, I don't know, four, three, four, and, wow. and could do it. And so when all these other elements start accompanying this experience. Of course, you. this is your only experience, so obviously you have nothing to compare it to. It's <laughs> right. not relative to anything else. But let me just say, in my school, if I had disappeared for like 12 weeks and I came back and I was super popular because TV, they would have killed me. Yeah. They would have just killed me. <laughs> yeah. The other boys would not have been able to yeah. stand that threat to yeah. their standing. There was some killing. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've had some deaths. <laughs> Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Monica, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? I want to say I would write and read my New Year's resolution. Yeah, uh, I would too. That would yeah. be the same. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. 
Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot DAX. We are supported by Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can do much more than build a website. You can also sell custom merch. Guys, this is what we do on Squarespace. We have a merch team, and we offer it all on a website beautifully built by WobbyWob on Squarespace. Simply design your products, and production, inventory, and shipping are all handled for you. With Squarespace, it doesn't matter what you sell, physical goods, digital products, services, they have all the tools you need to start selling online. Just take one of their professional website templates, then customize the look, update the content, and add features to fit your unique needs. You can make any Squarespace template do what you want so you can stand out online on any device. For a free trial, just head to squarespace.com DAX. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code DAX to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. We are supported by Smucker's Uncrustables. Oh, do I love these. I also love a food hack, and this is a good one. Check out Uncrustables, the best part of the sandwich. It's a round, crimped sandwich made with soft, pillowy bread filled with peanut butter and jelly. The best part is you simply freeze and thaw them. Pop them straight from the freezer into a lunchbox for less work on a busy morning. You'll find Smucker's Uncrustables in the freezer aisle. Learn more at Uncrustables.com. Going back to school was always a trial. And the very first year that I went sort of back to public school, you know, I think it was the second grade, it was really miserable. I was embarrassed. Yeah. It was uncomfortable. Kids weren't necessarily kind. And I remember my parents saying, well, you know, I would go back in like uh, in March or something, you know. So, I mean, there were only a few months left in the year. And, and they said, well, we can't get you into a private school or anything right now. So hang in. And if you don't want to go to Stevenson Elementary School in Burbank, California, next year, you, you won't have to. But just try to soldier through this if you can. And we talked about it. And, and dad had, he also, he, of course, my dad was kind of tough. He was kind and gentle. Well, was he in the Air Force? He was in the Air Force, well? but he'd also had really yeah. been a kind of an amateur boxer, kind of thought okay. about being a pro and had some skills and whatnot. He was always telling me, punch him in the nose. Which I never right. did. I never took him up on that <laughs> advice. But he and I wrestled all the time. We loved Channel 5 wrestling with Woe Nilly Dick Lane, who was, if you were <laughs> from the era in California in the 50s and 60s, who Woe Nilly Dick Lane was. But I loved wrestling and we wrestled all the time. And I would wrestle these kids. And, you know, fighting was wrestling. So you'd say, you right, want to right. fight and you'd clash. And I could, I, I could do that. I could do yeah, that. Yeah. Later, when people started punching and stuff, couldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Realized right away, I was not I was not a natural born fighter. Um, Pugilist. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I did wind up in really enjoying that that year. I got through the couple of weeks, and it wasn't a nightmare. And then, oh, and they good. said, "Do you want to? Well, what do you think about next year uh, when the time rolled around?" And I said, "No, I want to go back to Stevenson." So I stayed in the Burbank school system the whole time. And went to John Burroughs, yeah? Yeah, or, yeah, John um, Burroughs High School. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's where I met Cheryl, my wife, Cheryl. We met at Burroughs. You met her at? Yeah. No kidding. Wow. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. We talk about and that in the book. That's the high bit school too. that Glee is based off of. That's right. Yeah. Years later. And um, at the time, they weren't as tremendously competitive, but they had a good theater program, which I stayed away from. Of course, that's not what oh, I wanted to do. I was uh-huh. I was co-editor of the paper and I was on the basketball team. That was my thing. Now, what about, did the gals like you and the guys, were they threatened by you? I was pretty introverted and I, I think I was a little bit, probably a little squelched socially by that sort of that weirdness that I would feel. So I was extremely tentative. So not a lot of dating. I had a few very close friends. Noel Salvatore is one of them. I still, we're still close. We were the co-editors of the paper together and, and met Cheryl, fell in love with Cheryl in our junior year. But I was tentative and cautious about these kids. I'd got along with them. They were teammates, but I don't think I really trusted them entirely. Well, you must have always felt other. You were just too famous to not feel other, I'm sure. Yeah, which made life on sets pretty great because that's a place I was comfortable. Mm. We just interviewed Elijah Wood, and I did this movie, Zathura, speaking of David Kep, with two great young actors, Josh Hutcherson and Jonah Bobo, and I would talk a lot with his family. The families had tons of concerns, as you would expect. But in some weird way, I was like, oh, man, I understand their fear. But at the same time, here you have this seven-year-old and a 12-year-old in an environment where they're applauded when they're emotionally available and they're applauded when they're sensitive. And I was like, I mean, in some way, this is like Eden for a nice, sensitive kid to be respected and celebrated for being emotionally available. I think it means so much, first of all, for any child to feel competency to understand Mm -hmm. that in a genuine way, there is something they're capable of doing well. And I don't think it has to be show business or sports, but I think if you can help your kid find that thing which they can actually, and learn it, practice it, to the extent that you actually can feel competent, I think that's a huge confidence builder that means the world. We both benefited from that. It makes the fall a little bit harder when you get to the awkward years and suddenly that environment that you found so welcoming is kind yeah. of closed off to you, which really happens to most kids, especially boys, when yeah. they kind of go through the, what they call, you know, the awkward years where they also, you know, the rules. If you're under 18, your hours are limited and you can't you do can as work. much night shooting. You can work, but you can't do as much. So if you're 16, they'd rather hire any production, would rather hire somebody over 18 who can work 16 hours and not be cut off at eight. So that's where a lot of trauma occurs because there's at that very raw, vulnerable period in your life, you're also suddenly being, you can't help but feel rejected no matter how much you might understand it on some intellectual level or somebody might explain it to you. You feel like, I thought I had a place there. Right, that would be, I think the most nerve wracking is like, All of us, even when you're nine and 14, you have an identity and the identity includes that thing. And then to recognize, oh, this thing that's always been there, wait, that cannot be there. And then who am I if I'm not that? Now I re-enter this whole, you go from knowing what you want to do to going, what else do I want? It's (laughs) very scary. Yeah. And are there two different experiences? Like is Andy Griffith one experience for you? 
And then happy days is another one due to either maturity or, yeah, so like what level did you want to be on either show? Well, again, I never aspired to anything around the Andy Griffith show other than to be a part of it, which they allowed me to be, to a very kind of mature level. Certainly by the time, at the end of the show, by the time I was 13 and 14, I was a part of this cast. Happy Days was very different. Tonally, it was very different. I was handling my own career. There were career decisions. Uh, there were some shifts and dynamics that occurred. My character was sort of the lead and Henry Winkler's character just blew up and sort of took over, which was fantastic within our little unit because we viewed the whole thing as an ensemble sort of experience and Henry's the most gracious guy. And we were almost immediately great friends to the point of almost feeling like brothers. I mean, within almost no time. And yeah. so that was always fine. But the way the executives perceived me, the kind of feedback I was getting from the press, kind of always trying to stir up anxiety, creatively, all of these things I had to face as an adult. And yeah. of course there were no politics. There was nothing like that on, around the Andy Griffith show. That was my, that was a childhood experience. This yeah. was a grown-up experience. This was the real world of show business, even at an elevated level where you're the star, you're the top billed guy on a hit show. And yet yes. it's still this complicated emotional minefield what do you do about that? And I was also had a, a push and pull because I had such a fire in the belly to, to become a director. And I'd actually left film school to do the show. And so I wondered whether I was taking the money and shortchanging my dream. There were other factors there. Okay, well, if you don't understand the great appeal of your personal story, which I have to imagine you do, let me tell you from the outside, <laughs> what's so intriguing, I believe, the reason people will always want to talk about this with you is you took a job that's impossible to get and impossible to achieve at, and you did it twice, mm -hmm. and then you left. <laughs> and so you must yeah. recognize, like, yeah. you're taking something that is almost impossible to acquire and achieve, and you're saying goodbye to it. I mean, you actively left that show when it, you could have continued on yeah. for another few years. Right. And so that act of conviction about what you wanted to do and who you ultimately were, it steers every fear in us we could possibly have. <laughs> Would we have the courage to do yeah. that? Uh -huh. You happen to be an example of someone who listened to themselves and it worked out beautifully. And I do wonder, even as I read about you over again today, thinking he must not have the same fear of financial insecurity that I have, because mm -hmm. I don't know that I could have, just financially speaking. Right walked away from security. You know, it's really interesting. Even though my parents were of the Depression era, they were not very materialistic. Now, they were not hippies, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> stuff didn't really matter to them beyond a certain level. They had a kind of a mindset, which is why I think they always took joy in the fact that they owned their own home. That was it. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Uh, American dream. Uh, yeah. yeah. And even around the Andy Griffith show and later... I mean, they were open with me about what I was earning. And at a certain point, I was quite clearly out earning my father. Right. Which, again, I think he handled incredibly well. But I think they sort of armed me with a sense. Also, <laughs> I saved my money. So by the time I was making that decision about happy days, I had a bank account. It wasn't a retirement you know, yeah, circumstance, yeah. but I had a bank account. And that was a, a tremendous luxury. Yeah. So what kind of... 
dynamics other than like, so obviously social, school, all those things get complicated. It sounds like your father navigated this almost perfectly, but you certainly hear of parents who just can't help but have jealousy over their kids. Yeah. Realizing their dreams. And I th I imagine when it happens, it probably isn't even just like, it doesn't probably start with jealousy. It probably is triggered by witnessing the kid maybe not be grateful for it or being, quote, lazy about it. Like, I think the frustration of, do you know what you fucking got? <laughs> yeah, I wanted yeah. this forever. Or yeah. You got to take this. Like, I can't imagine escaping that. Yeah. I can't imagine it either. And yet it was my experience, which is, I think, one of the reasons that I think we both wanted to do the book is there's an outlier story here. And it's not yeah. just my dad, it's also my mom. And it's even their unlikely romance and the life they had. And somehow these sophisticated hicks kind of navigated this thing for us, required a lot of sacrifice on their part. They didn't bank this money. They took a very nominal manager fee, far less than a real manager would ever charge. And decision after decision, at least the major ones, were kind of remarkable, and yet they were flying by the seat of their pants. It was just instinct. It was just some kind yeah. of an instinct. Did you and your brother have a competitive nature or any jealousy or anything like that? I only felt it a little bit later, and it was kind of when I was going through my dry period— where people were not mm. casting me so much and the Andy Griffith show was over and other things were not so great. And I was trying to decide what my adult identity might, was going to be. And I wanted to be a director and I feeling moody and crappy and all that <laughs> stuff. He was getting like tremendous parts one after uh -huh. another. And once or twice we went up for the same thing and he got them. Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's like the Williams sisters. <laughs> yeah, just for a brief moment. But the age difference actually really benefited us. Right. And so that wasn't uh, ever a, a problem. And Clint's, I don't know if you know him, Dax, have you ever worked with him? I've never met him, but most comedians are obsessed with your brother. I can't explain why. I just inherited it. I went to the Groundlings and there was a show called the Clint Howard Show. Is that there right? Clint Howard. Yes. Wow. And then uh, there was a Clint Howard band. <laughs> there, like, yeah. People are obsessed with Clint uh, Howard. Yeah. He's a very <laughs> unique guy. The way we wrote the book is I wrote, Clint wrote, we were interviewed by this guy, David Camp, who's a great journalist. He helped us collect thoughts. He'd do a little writing and organizing. He'd send it back to us and rewrite it. And Clint's voice just comes out at you in the book. It's offbeat. It's very particular. There's a wisdom in it. He's lived a lot of life. And through it, I kind of gained a, a kind of clarity that even though he's my younger brother, sometimes I'll lean on him for advice because he's just sees the world in a different way and voices it in a different way. And he's just a character. And he was like that from, by the time he could walk, he just had a completely different vibe great athlete, all kinds of things. Can I postulate as to why, as someone who's five years younger than my brother, yeah. which is when you're Clint and I, right? they're doing it correctly. Right. The correct route is taken. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. Like, what am I going to eat with my mouth closed? You've been doing that for four years. Yeah. No one's going to pat me on the back. It's not exciting. I've got to fucking throw my dish on the ground and eat like a dog and make everyone oh, laugh. Yeah. You know, the, yeah, so you're already doing to that. everything the correct way. Yeah. So I'm not going to get attention doing it the right way. I'm only going to get attention with a novel approach to anything mundane. He found that novelty. <laughs> <laughs> and he's made a life out of it and a career. I'm going to argue one other point. And you have four kids, so you must have noticed this. I noticed this with our second child, which is she didn't give a fuck about consequences. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't figure out where does she get this fortitude? <laughs> yeah. And what I realized is like, if I give her a negative reaction to something, yeah. she has an older sister. Right. She's gotten 6,000 negative responses by breakfast right. from the older sibling. Oh. Oh. So guess what? She's yeah. like over it. Like, yeah. Oh, you're disappointed too? Okay, no big deal. Yeah, everyone's disappointed. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm over it. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much that happens. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, it's fascinating. This is a digression, but Cheryl and I have twins. They're grown women and one has three kids. But I learned the most watching these two kids grow up together. Are they fraternal or fraternal. identical? Fraternal. Okay. So they're always just sisters and close, but raised in the same environment, totally different attitudes and outlooks. And it's definitely, I'm going to take this space, you go in that lane, mm, or yeah. you're in that lane, I'm going in that lane. And you could see it from jump. So I think what you're saying just makes a world of sense. I have to try it out on Clint. <laughs> yeah, a family's a band. Mm -hmm. So if mm -hmm. you're already playing trumpet and dad's playing drums, I got to play the harmonica. <laughs> what, what other instrument is left for me? You know? I want to say it kind of maybe there's a bit of grace in that you've been able to probably have more control over your career than Clint yes, has. sure, yeah. And you're the older brother. I, I actually could speak personally about this, which is my sister's an actress, and she's fantastic. I've put her in a couple things, and she's really dynamite. And moving here from Michigan to anyone in Michigan, to know that she's been in TV shows and in movies with many, many lines and did great and done press— that's a fucking home run. Right. But I'm her brother. Yeah, yeah. It's relative to me, which really sucks right. for her. Yeah. But the yeah. age helps now, I think. If I were the younger sibling, it'd be harder for her. Yeah. Look, Clint's, again, sure. But although he, he never projects that, and maybe because he sort of is following in dad's footsteps in, in that way. Also, I think he always felt like I'm working too fucking hard. Sure. And it's not really worth it. And he loves yeah. it. And he does it, yeah. but no great Jones to direct or run the show. Or And would yeah. he like bigger parts, make a little more dough? Sure, maybe. But he's kind of got his life together. And so. Well, you've missed some things. Again, I have a couple friends that are in the stratosphere. And it's a very specific life. And it's pretty isolating. And it's pretty lonely. And you're gone a lot. And so when you're on the outside, you can also recognize like, oh, yeah, I want the house, but I certainly don't want to be gone for yeah. eight of the next 12 years. Yeah. I think he's always sort of had that feeling that, sure, he loves it, but he doesn't love it the way I do. I have a craving yeah. and an a kind of ambition that's it's beyond monetary. It's something else. And maybe it is, I think it goes to self-analyze. I think it does go back to that satisfaction that I felt and comfort around a set yeah. Versus the real world. Clint was always very comfortable in the real world, far more so than I was. Got along great in school. So I think the fact that the outside world was of more interest to him 
and he was willing to take more risks in it probably made him not want to get lost on a soundstage and stay there more or less forever. Indefinitely. <laughs> yeah. Until <laughs> <laughs> someone comes and wheels you out, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. takes you to hospice. <laughs> That's, yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you a few fun smoldering questions? First of all, I think we're on about 380 interviews, and this is the first time I've interviewed a boss, former oh, boss. Yeah. This is kind of novel. This is exciting in that way. Tell people about that in case they don't know. Yeah, so of course, Ron directed the most amazing movie ever, Parenthood, who I grew up loving and watching, and then got, I was lucky enough to be on a television show version of that movie. Right. And then through that, I got to meet Ron a couple times, and then I even auditioned for you at one point while on the show. Yes. And you were such a kind person for to audition movie. for. For a movie he was ah. directing that yeah. Vince Vaughn was in. Right. Channing Tatum got it, and you know what? That's all right with me. <laughs> yeah. I'm friends with Channing Tatum, <laughs> oh, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of people. That, that like, sort of introduced yeah, guess, him to, uh, to comedy. Crosby, Braverman. Yeah. Well, you were great on the show, and Brian Grazer, I mean, we're just fans. You won us over in a big way. That was a terrific experience because... We didn't have to do much, if anything, except support Jason. And he took the format, the names, the number of offspring, which he felt like, because when he first came in, I, Brian and I both said, why Parenthood? Why don't you just make up a, a show? He'd already done Friday Night Lights with Brian yeah. for a few seasons, and we, he was great. We would support him in anything that he wanted to do. He said, there's something that you guys and Gans and Mandel just got right about that. And it's a title people recognize deservedly, but I want to take it another way. It's not for laughs. There's comedy, but I have this other idea and this set of problems and a dynamic within the family. And if you'll give me that freedom, I really think the framework will accept it. And he was so right about it. And it was just great to see it the way it flourished. Well, I think what you achieved in the film, we wouldn't call Parenthood a dramedy, that's not the right mm -hmm. ratio, maybe right. a comma, whatever the fuck, you know, <laughs> comedy first, but yeah. drama, real yeah. life stuff, yeah. real emotion. Yes. And so in some sense, the brand, parenthood really meant that. It meant yeah. this fun, messy, real. Yeah. And so he did, you gave him that cornerstone to start on. I think it allowed him to let you parachute into the show uh -huh. without much explanation, which I think is great. Yeah. By the way, if you took the screenplay of Parenthood and sort of took it around to studios today, no, nobody would do it because it was kind of dark at times. There were minutes without laughs, minutes yeah, without laughs yeah. and, and real discomfort. And then when the laughs came, they came hard because, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, you, yeah, were, they you, broke you were ready. And yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. What, what a fucking crazy gift. I mean, you would never to connect these dots because you're not busy thinking about me, but I spent a ton of time <laughs> thinking about myself and <laughs> the notion that, you know, you do that movie when you do it, that leads to this show yeah. that for me buys me like another two decades as an actor, truly. Uh, like yeah. I got to do something I had never done and opened up all these things. Like, Did you first direct on the show or had you directed elsewhere? Yeah, I'd made a $5,000 movie and then a million-dollar car chase movie and then directed on the show. I see. All right, yeah. Yeah, and I think even I said this to you when we got together, but we share this in common in that you directed Grand Theft Auto right. virtually right out of the gates. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and if I could brag for us, 
Shooting cars is not easy. No. <laughs> you can count on a couple hands how many people have done it right. It is not easy to make cars look like they're going fast. That's all true. And years later when I was doing Rush, which was this very realistic Formula One drama based Great on a real relationship of a rivalry in, in the sport in the 70s, I found myself going back to Grand Theft Auto and remembering a lot of little tricks and things like that. Oh, well, I watched your movie prior to making my car chase movie, and I watched Duel... And you kind of recognize, let's nerd out for one second, you can see the talent awaiting. Because some yep. of his shots, the way he showed you how cars were going fast, were so inventive, even yeah. for his first movie. Yeah. People haven't seen Spielberg's TV movie, Duel, which, by the way, stars Dennis Weaver, the man who introduced oh, my mother right, and father. Right, right. You get it. Because I haven't watched it in 15 or 20 years, but the last time I watched it, it still rocked. And it's intense. I stole shots in 2012 from yeah, that. Yeah, you know, well, there's, a, there's a way to stay in the backseat of a car. Yeah. When you're in the backseat of a car, if that's your point of view of something, yeah. you're just instantly more terrified because you know you don't have the steering wheel. That's back. right. Yeah. Yeah. He had something, that young director. <laughs> that turned out. He, he knew a thing or two already. As I go through these questions I've never asked you in the times we've been around one another, first and foremost, just for me... I mean, Night Shift, what a special movie Night Shift is. That was Gans and Mandel, and Lowell had been a head writer and showrunner at a certain point. I'm Probably Gary Marshall never fully relinquished that credit, but Lowell was really responsible for Happy Days for a couple of key years, and we became great pals, but more than anything, this guy was just, just kind of remarkably talented. Now, remind me, where where is Michael Keaton at before Night Shift? He was an up-and-coming comic who was taking off, but he was acting in a show with Jim Belushi called Working Stiffs, also on the Paramount oh. lot. And it only went one season, but it turned out that Lowell had directed the pilot or the first episode or something like that and knew Michael. And when we were doing Night Shift, which was Brian Grazer's idea, that was the beginning of Imagine, really. That was the beginning of our, I mean, we, it wasn't an Imagine project. We didn't form the company for another five, six years. But that was the beginning of the partnership. And we couldn't get movie stars. We couldn't get movie stars to be in it. They just didn't trust me. They, you sure. know, and, and they just, we couldn't get them. Script was good. The studio was behind it. Couldn't get stars. It almost died. And we went to Henry Winkler and I said, you can play either part. And the studio will green light the movie if you say yes, because they can get a pre-buy from CBS. And he was, you know, the biggest television star in the world at that point. Movies, he hadn't had any blockbuster hits, but he was doing movies. And he said, yes. And he said, I want to play the straight man though, because I feel like if I play this crazy person, it's just sort of a cousin to Fonzie. And I don't want to do that. I want to yeah. play this. I know this guy. I grew up on the Upper West Side. I know this guy. Well, really quick. Ironically, does anyone even know at that point that Henry Winkler really isn't the Fonzie? I mean, <laughs> no has one. that been revealed? <laughs> no one even knew, right? Not really. Well, he'd been in a TV movie, a serious TV movie that was about the weather underground. He'd done a couple of comedies. So he'd done a few things away. But he is a sweet, sweet man. Oh, and a, a highly intelligent and a real artist and a remarkable guy, which is so great that Barry is such an amazing show and he's so amazing in it because he's still going and you're still getting to witness what he has to offer. But anyway, once he wasn't going to do that part, but we had a green light, Lowell said, if we didn't need a movie star and since Bill Murray and Chevy Chase all passed, uh, yeah. 
if we just want somebody who's really fucking funny, this guy, Michael Keaton, is on fire. Nobody knows him. The show's canceled, but he would kill. And he came in and just won it. He won it with the audition. And he was amazing. And the studio was so terrified. They wanted Brian and I to fire him after about three days. And I said, are you kidding me? And they said, he's all over the place. And I said, yes, but that's what coverage is for. I'm going to take that (laughs) the first first reading when he walks in the door, dynamite. The take falls apart, but the first reading, dynamite. The middle, look at that two shot. And I had to like, I mean, I was, I was, I was 27 years old having to walk these veterans through wow. how we could get a comedy performance out of this. That was brilliant. And I was right. <laughs> oh my God. I can't tell you even like within four days ago, I had a kid in the car ask me if I could turn the stereo up. And I said, I can turn it up. I can turn it down. I can put it in back and put it front, make it reverberate. <laughs> brilliant. That's great. <laughs> okay. And then another thing I have to ask you about, because I wonder if this kind of thing percolates up to you. Do you know there's a pretty big fascination with Brimley being 49 in Cocoon? Yes. Look, I saw the movie as a kid. He was a grandpa. I'm fucking 47 in a minute. (laughs) Like, what are we talking about? I know. No, he he was like 15 to 20 years younger than everybody else. Yeah. Did you have reservations about that? Or did you, like, how did that happen? Oh, I met him. The producers liked him for it. He was very good. He'd been great in The Natural and a couple of things that I'd seen, Tender Mercies. And we did a test. I mean, he came in basically, he had dyed his hair white. He he was, Uh you know, know, bald on top and he dyed the fringe. And he said, with a little makeup, I can get there, I can play it. And we just believed him. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made, even though he was pretty curmudgeonly and difficult. But, (laughs) But talk about improv. You know, without being jokey or reaching for comedy, although he could be very funny, or straining in any way, he turned that movie on its ear by being improvisationally brilliant. And in rehearsals, Mm. I identified this and totally ran with it. And it scared the hell out of everybody else because that's not what they did. Well, nobody did that then, let's Well, well not as much, not so much. But, yeah, yeah. But he was just great. And there's, there's a famous scene or a fairly famous scene where he's fishing with his grandson and he's talking about sort of he's probably going to go up on a spaceship and he's telling the kid. And it was a scene that was written in a bedroom, kind of like a sitcom scene or a Walton's episode or something. And he said, uh, how about if it was just... Me and the boy fishing. And I said, <laughs> okay, we can try that. Yeah. I mean, I had to talk the studio into it and everything. But, and I said, uh, but I want to just talk to the boy. He'll know the lines, but I'd like to just talk to the boy. And I said, mm. okay, just as long as if we need it, we can go in and do the scripted version. And I sort of had to negotiate these things with him because he was pretty prickly. Sure, sure. <laughs> and I went in and I basically said, okay, we're, gonna, we're, be- we're betting on his improvs. And we'll get three cameras and we'll do it like a TV show. We'll do wide, medium, tight, and tighter. Because I knew he wouldn't want to do a lot of takes and it was improvised. And that's what we did. And it was this beautiful- And he gave it to you. Oh my God. And I mean, it was a real lesson. It was a real lesson for me also to take a risk and trust an actor, even though we weren't like buds. We annoyed one another in a lot of ways. But this thing we agreed upon, I thought it really changed the whole movie, because suddenly everybody had to not be in a sort of a sci-fi comedy, but instead be in a movie that was grounded. Had real moments. And had real moments, grounded in reality. To the point where he didn't like that there were aliens. 
He said, why do they need all these aliens Wrong. in spaceships? Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, that's kind of the entire movie. Uh, 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 yeah, but how about if we just talk to each other? Well, I like the talking to each, each other, but we need the aliens. And Let me the- sit down with an extra thick bowl of Quakers. <laughs> talk to these Martians. Straighten them out. Let me take the Martians fishing. <laughs> to get him to actually look at the sea stand with the tennis ball on top of it that was the alien— I had to get people to play them. And okay. he, he would look at people. He just, yeah. which I kind of get, you know? Yeah. I kind of get. Uh, yeah. yeah. Look, whatever it takes to be great. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Viator. When you're traveling, you want to get there and experience something new and fun. Like recently, I went off-roading in a, on a Mexico vacation. Got to some locations we would have never gotten to otherwise. Got to see a huge waterfall. It was heaven. If you want to make your next trip memorable, you need to visit Viator. It's a website and app that'll help you book fun experiences and adventures all over the world. They have over 300,000 bookable experiences in over 190 countries. Like, now this is something I would do, a tour of Rome's gems on a vintage Vespa. I mean, how else are you going to find that? Or how about a Jeep jungle tour if you're heading to Punta Cana? Fun. Another reason Viator is so great is it has 24-7 service. And you need that when you're on vacation with time zone differences and everything else. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use the code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. That's Viator, V-I-A-T-O-R, with the number 10. We are supported by Sleep Number. Sleep is so important for your overall health and well-being. And if you don't get enough of it, there could be some serious negative impacts. So how do you make sure you get some quality rest? Well, it starts with a good mattress, like the Sleep Number Smart Bed. It was designed for your one-of-a-kind, ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can take your sleep to the next level. Boy, I got to tell you, having just traveled back and forth to India and skipped 12 time zones, I get reminded of how absolutely imperative good sleep is. Oh, it's so necessary. You cannot even feel like a human being if you're not. (laughs) The best part about Sleep Number is you can easily adjust your firmness. And while you sleep, Sleep Number smart beds automatically respond and adjust to your movements throughout the night. It's heaven. And if you want to improve your health and well-being, Sleep Number is where you should start. Sleep Number smart beds can show your ideal sleep and wake-up schedule and the best times for activity like working out and winding down. Sleep next level with a Sleep Number smart bed. It's the only bed that lets you adjust each side to your ideal firmness and comfort. Your Sleep Number setting only at Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are supported by The Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, The Defender 110 is up for adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. For a start, the exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender 110's legendary capability lets you go further and do more, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Its durability has been tested to the extreme. It can handle your equipment too, as the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Explore with greater confidence with powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display, an award-winning infotainment system, and innovative camera technologies. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. 
Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. So that kind of leads me to the last question I want to ask you about your career. I would view this as potentially like a double-edged sword or a great blessing you have, and also perhaps a curse, which is you became so successful and such a great director that you had access to virtually everyone, or at least a good shot at everyone, which also means you worked with most people in like the height of their powers. And so you've worked with a ton of people that had most of the leverage and probably idiosyncratic personalities and probably too much attention. How have you navigated those huge personalities and gotten what you've wanted? Having met you, knowing you're a bit of an introvert, you probably don't love getting in screaming matches. No. How have you done that? What is your secret? <laughs> I have had great experiences with actors, and I think they just trust me. And early on, I think I'm able to earn their trust, and now I have a good resume to go with it. I'm able to use logic. When we're having a difference of opinion, we can work it out. It's only a short yeah. period of time. We're, we're meant to do this thing together. And I've never not been able to get an actor to try what I needed to try, but I've always been very willing to go down his or her road as well. Mm -hmm. And so I don't get hung up on digging in. I try to find their path to the thing I need as much mm -hmm. as possible and as wordlessly as possible, unless some people want to overanalyze, in which case I can participate in that. But a lot of people wanna just be guided gently. And I remember very early on, I was just beginning to make a lot of short films. I was probably 18, 19. And I was making sound 16 millimeter shorts and they weren't very good. The acting wasn't very good. And yet I was getting professionals to be in my stuff. And I went off and I did a television movie Cloris Leachman starred in it, and Sissy Spacek was in it. It was it was uh, written by Lanford Wilson, a great playwright, and from a Tennessee Williams story. It was a really good piece, and it was called called The Migrants. Terrific television director who did some movies as well, Tom Grice, and we shot this in like 12, 13 days. And on the plane flight back, I thought, God, that's he's one of the best directors I've ever worked with. And then I realized he really only gave me about three directions. He was always, really? which was always bailing me out or answering a question. And uh -huh. he had cast me without an audition. There was a level of trust. And I, yeah. I began to do, apply that to the short films I was making and kind of make the actor-director thing a collaboration yeah. and not a, you're my puppet, I need you to do this thing, which is kind of what I was doing before. But the, yeah, yeah. I try to create this environment where they know I'm there to back them up. I'm also a safety net. And I'm not going to agree with everything that they say, but when people realize that you're very eager to say yes, they're much more willing to accept no. Mm. Uh-huh. You're not just a hater. You're not no, just there to- No, no, yeah. you know, and, and over controlling or anything like that. You earn your no's. But I also love rehearsal, which is a place where you get to sort of work through how you're going to get on with this. How am I going to bring yeah. out their best? How am I going to create the environment where they can feel confident and really soar? And it's always a kind of an Im imperfect process. And some days are better than others, but I love it. Still love it. 
I'm not asking for any names, but has anyone had the power to ruin an experience for you? Yeah, or color it. I can't uh-huh. say anything's ever been ruined because I'm proud of the films. And, and if I'm not happy with the entire film, there's always like, there's that scene or those se- that yeah, sequence yeah, yeah, or yeah. something that I feel like, wow, we really, we really nailed that. But there are some people that wasn't a great collaboration. Yeah. But there's no one, probably no one I've worked with who I patently wouldn't work with again. Like if, oh, if, if, if exactly the right circumstance came along, I uh-huh. would say, sure. Why? Because we owe it to the audience and we owe it to the story to make it great. Okay, other director nerd question. What mistake do you make over and over and over again as a filmmaker? <laughs> oh. Is there one? Yes, there are far too many <laughs> to mention. <laughs> but because I do like to try to create a safety net for actors, and as an actor, I did not like to be rushed, I don't yeah. often enough say, pace it up. Uh-huh. I don't often okay. enough go in and say, let's do that, but 30% tighter. Yeah, yeah, twice speed. <laughs> twice yeah, yeah. the speed. So sometimes it forces me into edits when the performance is cooking, but it's just not unfolding in the right tempo. And I kick yeah. myself for that. And sometimes with the staging, same thing. And I'll box myself into having to edit in a certain way because yeah. I didn't just get them to move quicker or stage it more simply or something like that because I was going for something that was kind of honest and relaxed and that the actor really connected with. So it's kind of, in the grand scheme of things, I think that kind of rapport with the actors and seeking that kind of honesty and comfort benefits films more than it hurts them. But I do kick myself in every single film in the editing room for that sort of thing. And now what percentage of your focus is visual versus performance? Do you think you could give a ratio to that? It's always tilts more toward, I would just say the character more than the, and so sometimes that's getting the right visual around that character at that time. This is something I had Uh to learn because in the beginning Uh I was just all about, there's one thing you can count on. That's a great close-up of an actor. I still feel that way. You know, that's like the greatest weapon in the arsenal is a well-written scene, an actor who can play it and a good close shot of that person. You kind of can't go wrong. But as I've gone along, I've learned that there are other ways to build that character and support that performance. And sometimes they're a tiny figure on a horizon and that's as powerful. And so a lot of my work as a director, and it continues to be, is trusting audiences. It's not a TV show. You don't have to spoon feed. You can be a little more elusive. And I mean, I learned this rapidly on, on Apollo 13. And I've continued to sort of work with it more and more and trust it more and more as I've gone along, just how smart audiences are and yeah. how ready they are to put the pieces together. The f- even the blue hairs. <laughs> even, even, a, even the blue hairs, even uh, though afterward, commercial. even afterward <laughs> when they, they'll say that was disgusting, but uh, yeah, yeah, they will have connected with it. The movie I'm editing right now is called 13 Lives. And it's about the uh, rescue of the soccer team in Thailand a few years ago. What an amazing experience. It's great international cast of Thai and Western actors. 25 or 30% of it is in Thai. We focus a lot on the rescue team, which were foreigners, uh, mostly Westerners, 
But it was a great adventure, although hampered a little bit by COVID. But still, uh, actors you'd know, Viggo Mortensen and Joel oh, Edgerton, Colin Farrell. Yeah. It was Good a, luck it, getting it, performances out of those three. Uh, it, was, it was a real drag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And man, they went all in. They just so invested in trying to get it right. And of course, the Thai cast felt like this was their opportunity to reflect what this story meant to them, yeah. you know, as a country yeah. and as a people. It, man, it makes me really want to spend time in Thailand. Great people. <laughs> Great, great people. I was talking to one actor at one point. I said, man, are you doing okay? The actor playing this this coach who was trapped in the cave with the boys and he'd lost a lot of weight and he just looked terrible. And I said, are you doing okay? You're here barefoot, not eating. Are you holding up all right? And he said, oh yeah, we usually work 18 hours a day on films. This is really easy. (laughs) 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 They're tough. They're tough. They're tough. Have you allowed yourself to float up to 30,000 feet and recognize that you occupied some pretty significant chapters in the story of of Hollywood. You were in an era where TV was going to dethrone movies. And that looked like it was happening. And then you were part of the directorial efforts that brought film back and defeated TV in some sense. And here we are now, we're going back into a phase where TV's destroying movies. Right. You've played in all these time yeah. periods. Is that yeah. wild or? It's wild. And I do think about it. And I think about a couple of things. When I was young, a lot of the actors I worked with talked about their act. And they still had a vaudeville men- mentality, which was you can right. be in the movies, you can be on radio, you can be on TV, but you always, you better have your act. Because sure, sure. that was the meal ticket. That was the, the one, that was the insurance policy. You go up to the Catskills and do a show or something. That's right. Yeah. Well, vaudeville died per se, that yielded stand-up comedy, that yielded Cirque du Soleil, that yielded touring rock and roll shows. And so I feel like that storytelling hasn't changed. I was talking to Martin Scorsese, here I am name dropping again. Keep doing it, about, we love about, it. <laughs> about, you know, about these changes and so forth. And he said, yeah, but there were decades, well, not decades, but 15 years where you saw a movie by putting in a nickel and cranking the crank. And that was, that <laughs> yeah, was the medium. The, And so, you know, it was shocking when you could go do it this other way. And some people really liked the crank still. (laughs) Sure, get a little workout. (laughs) And so it's still a new medium and it's these moving pictures and and the way they're delivered, it keeps changing. One other thing that informs my attitude toward all of it. When I was doing Cocoon, we cast a local actor in St. Petersburg, Florida, who had been an actor, but now he was 96 years old. And I still drove himself to work. We found him through the Rotary Club or something. He was an active guy, Charlie. Charlie had been an actor. Well, when was the last time Charlie acted? 1916 or 17. And Charlie had been too old to be drafted into World War I, but had been an actor in the silent, early silent movie days on the East Coast when it was New Jersey and New York. Right. And when it moved to LA, he didn't want to move to LA. And it kind of died on the East Coast. He went to Florida, became a salesman, and that was that. And I said, so, wow, this must be kind of wild for you to see what movies are like today compared to what you experienced. And he said, no, it's kind of the same bullshit. (laughs) 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 He said, the biggest difference now is, he said, the, the only difference is that in those days, we didn't have to stop the card game if you weren't in the scene when they were shooting. 
<laughs> you didn't have to shut up. Now with the sound, you have to stop. <laughs> Every time you're doing a take. can't play So the putting on the show, the getting it told, it really hasn't changed. And yes, I've seen a lot. And technology, my daughter Bryce is now directing episodes of Mandalorian in, in what they call the volume. It's a whole new technological wow. approach in a way. And yet none of it is that different from what I remember at age five when I was just learning about the medium and the way it worked. It was still about breaking these moments down, understanding them, recording them, and presenting them. And it, yeah. it's just not all that different. Yeah. And I got to add, if I divorce myself from my personal feelings about this industry, and I just look what what is available to me at night mm -hmm. on television. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's the high watermark oh, of creativity. I, I mean, we're really living is. at the fucking apex I, of, you I, know. I do not disagree. And I think it only benefits creative people, audiences. It's tough if you're the bank, if you're the studio, yeah, yeah. if you're the distribution yeah. system. Right at this moment, it's hard to know how much to invest in what. And, and of course, I love the movie experience. I don't think it's going to vanish entirely, just as yeah. vaudevillians found another way to do their comedy or their acrobatics. And I think that that shared experience is not going to go away entirely. But I also don't think it's ever going to quite be the same. And it may not be the predominant. It may be the hardcover sort of a publication of a book, but yep. more people are going to read the paperback. Yeah. or get it on Kindle or something like that. And so I certainly still hope that people don't go through their lives and never realize how cool it is to sit in a room with a lot of people, especially for a comedy or especially for something that really does transport you and understand what that shared experience is like. But also just great that so many hours of fantastic writing, acting and directing. Points of view you've never even From considered. all over the world. To me, it's an incredible time. I agree with you. Okay, well, I'm going to end on this. I don't even need to ask you this question. I can look at how you regularly work with the same people. Mm -hmm. You've had the same partner for 40 years. Mm -hmm. What I can answer for you is that I, I know it's not the money, and I know it's not the awards, and I know the real gift of this job is getting to sh spend your life with the people you've gotten to spend it with. Right. And I want to tell you, you're that person for so many people and I was just, my heart was warm to meet you oh. and to be in your orbit and to get to talk to you. You are such a special person and you are one of those people that other people have, it's made the whole experience worth pursuing. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. That, You're just a beautiful uh, dude. And uh, I've always felt so lucky that I've got to meet you in my life. So. Well, thank you. Keep up your great stuff, man. You're bold. You're doing all kinds of things. I'm Clint. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I want everyone to check out The Boys, A Memoir of Hollywood and Family by Ron and Clint Howard. It is out October 12th, my lovely father's birthday. So an auspicious date. Please watch it and do yourself a favor. If you are not hip to Night Shift, to Gun Ho, to Splash, man, treat yourself. These are all awesome movies too to show like your young teen kids are like safe and wonderful and we got to keep Ron Howard alive and well. So, <laughs> so great to talk to you. Great talking to both of you. Thank you. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. Hello. Hello. Hello, lady. Hello, man. 
How are you doing? We have uh, an exciting weekend ahead of us. We do. Let's we're gonna talk go see. About yeah, we're gonna go see Huss and Minaj. That's right. Do stand up live. I'm so excited. Can I brag a little bit? Yeah, he sent me a pair of Jordies. Oh yeah, you gotta brag about this. They're so sexy. And I'm gonna tell you something. I think I've even said it before on here. I am allergic to white shoes. It makes me feel like my feet are way too big, even though they're moderately sized for a six three individual. Oh, I thought you were just scared because dirt. Oh no, I don't give a shit about that. Oh. You, yeah, yeah. No, I, I just feel like all of a sudden my feet are like size 15 when I wear white shoes. Mm. But these are gonna get me over that hump. And I told him, these shoes mm. are gonna take me to new places and I'm not Literally. shocked. I'm not shocked that it's you that is gonna bring me to these new places. Oh, that's nice. I mean, they're not pure white. They have a couple like hints of color, which is They're off pretty. white and then they have some like mauve in it yeah. and they have some some tan. Uh, mm. There's a pop of a tumble. I like a mauve. He's so stylish. You know, I thought, do you follow him on Instagram? Yeah, he just posted oh. some cool outfits he was in. Yeah, like, I don't know. He's like turned into Robert Downey Jr. or something. I mean, he's so fashion. Fashion flary. friendly, fashion fr forward. It's fashion friendly. <laughs> what was I saying to you? And it was Elmer Fudd. And then I left you a voice message. You said you were going to keep a voice memo. Oh, I kept it. Let's see. You're true cowards <laughs> are beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's true colors. <laughs> but your true colors are beautiful like a rainbow. <laughs> also, to be noted, we started uh, an incredible documentary series called Bad Sport. Yes. Or Sports. On, on Netflix. On Netty. It's really good. We've started a few very good things. So okay. These are good wrecks. Um, bad Sport. We think yeah. singular. <laughs> and well, the first one we watched was about a point shaving scandal at ASU. Yes. And it was so juicy. And, and you feel me. so bad for yes. these guys. I felt really heartbroken by the end of it. It was a mix of feeling bad for them and so impressed and proud of them. I mean, the way you bring these fucking games in to, the, the, egg, to the number. Point. I know. You, I was like, this person, yeah. I mean, how good would you have to be to do that? Yeah. Oh, and, and then heartbreaking. He didn't. Yeah, that's mm. heartbreaking. Oh, no spoilers. We're not going to spoil, but you guys should watch that. And then scenes mm. from a marriage. Scenes from a marriage. With, with Jessica Sa Sastain. God, no one can talk. <laughs> Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac. Oh, fuck, man. And man. Are they good? <laughs> they are so. It's bonkers. They're so good. I mean, they're just so natural that you really feel like you're in there. And honestly, I was like, mm, I gotta take a, I gotta take a break and get into something a little lighter. I'm gonna watch Squid Game. Yeah, and that Squid was, Game is lighter than that. Exactly. Yeah, it is. It Squid is. Squid Game is incredibly violent and awful, and it was lighter. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Scenes from a Marriage. It was recommended to us by a guest, yes, uh, upcoming guest, and um, the acting's off the charts. The writing is. I mean, you're watching it, and there's just a point where you're like, "Why do humans try to cohabitate?" Like, well, why? why? Every and I'm obviously I'm not married, and I was still like, "Oh my god, just being a person is so hard. Being a person interacting with any other person it, it, is almost impossible." It's it's hard enough to be a person, yeah. Period. And then now you try to make two of these lives. Messiness and being human. Messiness and being human. You know, we should think about describing the show that way. Really? 
You don't think it's cliche? Yeah, you're right. Let's not. Okay. Um, but yeah, man, it's just like God bless all of us who give it a shot. Yeah, <laughs> it's not easy. It's not easy. No. Yeah, but it's a beautiful show and uh, impeccably acted. I don't know. Maybe you have an opinion on this. I don't know if it's smart to watch it with your partner. I agree. I agree. In fact, when I saw the kind of trailer for it, I was like, yeah, I don't know that this is something I want to watch with Kristen. Yeah. It, you know, it's just, have you watched it? Yeah, I intentionally did not watch it with Natalie. Yeah, that's probably. Because <laughs> she watched it and she said she cried four <laughs> times in the first episode. And I was like, eh, yeah. I don't want to be part of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to. Yeah, I just imagine like a trillion different conversations could spiral out of that thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the power of art is that you start, you know, you identify with these people. Whether, By the way, it led to, I thought, kind of an interesting breakthrough for me personally. That's oh. how good it is. Well, which was what? Well, we were watching it, and the male character, when he gets bad news or he gets news that is clearly going to turn emotional, his attempt to ground it in something logical that they can then construct their way out of is so me. I was watching it just embarrassed of what it's like to be around me, to be engaged with me at all uh, in an interpersonal relationship or as a uh, sexual partner. At first, I was just like, yeah, that's me. But then then I was thinking, well, it's me for a very specific reason. I'm terrified of someone I care about going through something emotional mm-hmm. that I can't fix. Yeah. It's, I hate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, man, that's... But more than that, you don't want to go through anything emotional. So you're looking at it through the lens of logic for yourself as well. Yeah, it's almost like I can't be emotional. Like, I have this sense that if I am, it's like, you'll see me in two weeks. Mm. (laughs) Like, it's just like the whole thing's going to open up in a way that'll be very overwhelming for me. The only two times it's really happened in the last decade was when I thought Aaron was dying, which you were privy to, and then when I admitted I was using drugs. Mm-hmm. Like both those times, even while it was coming out, I was like, choke this thing back in. Like, don't yeah. you know? It helped, but it. Oh, it's so you necessary. You didn't die from it. I didn't die, and I, I actually aspire to have much more emotion. But it's just, it is terrifying to me. You might have died if you hadn't had that emotion. That's true. Oh, boy. Oh, you just brought him down. Our friend, speaking of that, uh, also kind of a downer, our friend is sick. He has a very, very, very bad bacterial infection in his mouth. Uh-huh. And he's a sober friend. Yeah, yeah. And he has to take... um, Some opiates. Some opiates right now. Yeah. And it's, it's so funny. His wife is perfect. Literally. She's incredibly even keeled. I go to her for so much. Like she is a real rock and she's having a hard time. Sure. And I've never seen it. Yeah. And she's really like having some PTSD. Oh, sure. From when her husband was ruining his (laughs) and their lives. Yeah. And like you're watching someone juggle chainsaws and you're like, okay, let's try to do this in a manner that, you know. So scary. And it's so overwhelming. And I, I feel for her. Yeah. Because I'm an idiot and I fucked up, the next time I had to be on them, 
since my relapse because I had my entire shoulder rebuilt. Like I'm talking, there's pieces in there. They got to yeah. put two plates in. They had to take a a, 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 a bone graph out of my hip. Mm. Like it was a for real fucking thing. And then I have this infection. I'm in the hospital overnight. Well, because of my idiocy before, it was decided by uh, Kristen and my doctor what I would get medicated. And what's really funny is uh, I'm, I was on the exact same medication that our friend is currently on. And uh, he was like, we were talking about it. He's like, I, you know, I can't even feel it. Like I'm taking it as prescribed and I don't even feel it. And I was like, yeah, and that that's what I was on post bone graph. Yeah. <laughs> because and I, I deserve that. Yeah, but no, but it, But it I, put it into perspective a little bit of yeah, like what the sure. last go around was like. Although I will say I, I think there is something to be said about the total disproportionate pain that happens in your mouth. It makes no sense that those things should hurt the way they do, because it's yeah. small and who cares? But like I don't. I, I I do find mouth things, yeah, highly miserable. But not saying I'm not. Seventeen okay. years ago, I got my teeth zoomed. It was called. I think mm. it was like a a teeth whitening. Oh yeah. And I, of course, was like, I want to say they were like, well, you can either do a fifteen minute interval or a twenty two, and it'll hurt. And of course, I'm like, you know, fucking blast them, man. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Cut to three hours later. I, yeah, I agree. I I would say that was one of the worst days of my whole life where my teeth, every single tooth felt like it had an ice pick in it. Yeah. And it was just, it's inescapable. It doesn't stop. I used to get off on it. Like when I had braces, when they would tighten them, it would make your teeth really sore. Yeah. But I came to really like that feeling. Yes. And I would, um, I think in an OCD way, like a tick way, I did everything back then. I would bite down really hard and it would hurt really bad. But then the sensation of when it would dissipate was so satisfying. I get that. Yeah. That was just another downer I thought I'd bring up on this Friday. Anyone die that you loved recently? We could. No, but I did feel like maybe my grandpa's going to die. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Should we talk about the bagels? Oh, my gosh. Okay, let's, let's bring up something really good. Rob is friends with the best bagel maker in all of Los Angeles. Courage bagels. It's not sufficient. Now, look, we're about to make the problem worse, but it's not adequate to call it a bagel. Yeah. They're, Mon- they're Montreal-style bagels. That That's like the a- theme? Well, Montreal-style, you boil them, and then you uh, bake them in, like, a wood fire oven. So they're crispy and, and, like, burnt on the outside and but like real dough, soft on the inside. Yeah. I've never tasted something like it and it's such a departure from all the bagels i've ever had and it is insane and in fact it was such fucking torture because i had given myself a pretty gnarly arthritis flare-up because monica and i are partying with trash food right now first was a a, like spaghetti and i had like i don't know upwards of a gallon Mm. of noodles and then the next day i had three chicken salad sandwiches (laughs) on white crap bread and then i was delicious bread fucked i could barely lay in bed and everything was hurting my fucking thumb was all swollen burgers yeah we had burgers with more white gluten so good all of these oh it's all so good and then i finally like my neck was hurting my hip was hurting my fucking hand was hurting and i i I finally was like i got to clean i gotta right the ship yeah so i made it a whole day with no gluten like show up to record in the morning and wobby wob has bought me one of those bagels 
and it, it, it was it, it was torturous. Yeah. It was so torturous. I, I was had that tiny bite. Yeah. I just had to have the texture for one second. So I had a milli, milli bite. Mm. I mean, yeah, I, I'm afraid to talk about it because the, there's already an insane line for them. Yeah, yeah. But I guess since there's already an insane line for them, like, yeah, what like 45 ahead. minutes, don't even bother. Just don't bother. Don't go. Don't go. But, but go. But it's do the best go. way. They're yeah, so but go good. before you die. You got to try this and before I you die. And I posted a picture and I got so Did people yell at you? Ma- no, but just, oh. but they were like, oh my God, yes, yes, my favorite. <laughs> like so many. When you watch the Seinfeld episode about the soup Nazi, <laughs> yes. and you're like, I want to know so bad what that soup yes. was like, right? And that's this. You're right. That is funny when there's things on TV or in books and like, it's the coveted item. We can't have it. Like we can't have the soup Nazi soup. And I like Butterbeer was like that. In what? Harry Terrence Potter. Uh huh. And Terrence Posner. But then they ha- they do now make it at like the parks and stuff. But it's not it's the Butterbeer. Yeah. It's, well, it's um. What did the Butterbeer consist of? It tastes just like cream soda. Oh. And I love cream soda. Or- I enjoyed it, but it's too sweet. It's not what the real Butterbeer tastes like. An actual. Terrence Posner world. Yeah, and Hogwarts. But I'll never get to taste that. Why do you think it was named Hogwarts? I mean, I love the name, but it's it's off-putting. Should I ask why? She suggested in interviews that she got the idea for the name Hogwarts from the Hogwarts plant, which she had seen at Kew Gardens before writing the Harry Potter books. What's the Hogwarts plant? Hogwarts plant. It's also called Wooly Croton. This is all so English. It is. It looks like that. Oh, uh, I was thinking manufacturing plant. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, An action. Well, she saw it at the gardens. Oh, right. Okay. I thought she was in a garden and looked over and there was this huge hogwart plant, which made the the, um, airplane, the warthog. Oh, my. Okay. You really. I went somewhere. You really went somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's what uh, Terrence Buzzard will do. He'll take you places. I know. Like these shoes that Allison got me. Um. Ron. Howard. Lovely. Oh, God. What a sweetie pie. And he's so Andy Griffith's show. Like, Mayberry. Yeah. Yeah. He's really taken that vibe with him throughout his whole life. It's beautiful. It is. And so talented in so many different yes. pursuits with hitting the apex of each pursuit. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. So he said, whoa, Nellie Dick Lane as like one thing, as a person. Okay. he was talking about wrestling. And, oh, right. and I was like, whoa, Nellie Dick Lane, I don't know who that is. And then I looked it up, and it's it's Dick Lane, but his catchphrase was, whoa, Nellie, which oh. of course I've heard. <laughs> but he said it all as one, and I was like, whoa, Nellie Dick Lane, what is that? Dick Lane was an announcer. Oh. Yeah. And he would say, obviously, he would say, whoa, Nellie. But our favorite thing that uh, WWF or E uh, announcer has ever said mm-hmm. is, when Andre would take a fart. <laughs> that is our favorite. No. Okay, so that's cleared up, thank God. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Also, fun fact, I didn't say it in the episode, which I'm kind of surprised I didn't. Jess went to Burroughs High School. I said it. I just listened and I didn't hear it for some oh, reason. I don't know maybe why. Maybe I didn't. I brought it up. Jess went to Burroughs High School. I know, and he was in Glee Club. And yeah. He, yeah. I'm pretty positive. Maybe, that maybe. Well renowned for their Glee, Glee program. <clears throat> Glee program, sorry, yeah. not club. I don't. I don't think they would want to call it a club. No, because it's like in, clubs are like extracurricular. Okay. But this is their life. 
coin club, stamp club. Hmm. What club? Were you in any clubs? God, no. I was in one. I was what in craft you? club. Craft club? Is it like a baby? That was... <laughs> Not as a fucking teen. No, as a teen. Craft club? Yeah, it was secret <laughs> society because there was like... 12 seniors and they picked a junior. Oh God, this is right up your alley. Yep, to get to limited pick. edition. Picked a junior and then we all would meet. And you got picked, clearly. Yeah. How many people were applying? No, <laughs> no one applied. <laughs> no one applied. Just okay. A senior just picked a junior they uh, liked and thought oh, would be a good invested addition. and good. Yeah, and, um, and then we met once a month and like did a craft. It wasn't connected to the school, to be fair. Well, good. That would have been a misallocation of funds if they were funding the craft club. I don't know. Why? I learned stuff. Benefit to society. Like how to make a piggy bank out of a glass jar. It does remind me, even though I was defending that school we argued about last fact check, we did both share a big, big belly laugh when they said, you know, we field over 300 applicants. Exactly. And I I think more than 300 people have applied to Pizza Hut this week. Like that's... <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> to me, that was validation. I know, it felt good. You know, I was too cool to do so many things that I robbed myself of. I've told you this. Like, I, I should have played high school sports, but I was like, I had to find myself against jocks. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I would have, I probably would have loved smashing into people on a football field. And I was a big boy. I probably could have done okay at it. Were you too cool for stuff? Um, Wobby, Wobby. I played sports until high school. I was in a cl- uh, computer multimedia arts club. Fuck, I there love we you go. so much. I get that. I love that. That tracks, and that's worked out in your life. Yeah, you're rich because of it. You know, well, that's good a good job. club to And I am join. because of crafts. Well. It all worked out for I don't me know too. if that, if we see. Yep. That's, okay. I'm having a new car built. <laughs> Talk about it. Okay, well, as some folks might know, I named, uh, well, we named our first daughter, but really I, because... She would never do this. Why would she? After a car. Mm-hmm. Our first daughter is named Lincoln, not after the president. Uh, she was named after my Lincoln Continental, which is the car that I have the biggest emotional tie to. Yeah. I've had it for 26 years, and I've redone the entire thing. I made a whole movie about it. I love it. So clearly Lincoln's getting that car yeah. at some point. Yeah. Well, it turns out, even though Delta's not named after the car, they did make an Oldsmobile Delta 88. Yeah. And so a couple things are coming down the pike. I'm getting a Delta 88 tattoo, which makes me really nervous because 88 is a problematic number because white nationalists get it because of oh, Heil Hitler. H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. Oh. So these Nazis get 88 put on them. Oh. And it's a Delta 88. I just got to do I can't let that but not be the reason why I- Why do you want it to- Why do you want- I thought you were just getting her name. No, I'm getting the actual oh, the um, car, the car logo. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, Delta eighty eight. I was just saying, I'm, I'm, you know, let me pronounce it to the world. If you ever see me, don't ever think it's that kind of eighty eight. It is a Delta eighty eight. Very specific. So that's happening. And then in addition, with the help of this amazing company, Three Pedal, and they're not paying me, and uh, they're not giving me anything. So I'm just telling you, I've been following them for years. I love them. They take really stupid cars, the kind I like, like B bodies, like my Roadmaster. Caprice Classics, fucking dumb sedans, and they make them stick shift, and they put obnoxious engines in them. I've always loved their cars. They take them to autocross tracks. They're fucking awesome. Well, that that group and I have found a premium 1985 Delta 88, a big square, dumb-looking car, and we're putting a 580-horsepower motor in it mm. with a six-speed, big disc brakes, suspension off a of vet. It's going to be so fun. Cool. I'm really excited about it. And then Delta will get that car. 
Yeah, that's nice. But you could also get her an airplane. An airplane? Why? A Delta. Well, okay. Just saying. I mean, sure. You could have. Yeah, very trusted airline. Oh, I wrote this. This was because Jonah Bobo comes up on this episode because you're talking about kids who are. Oh, who are nurtured. Yes. Yeah. And I love Crazy Stupid Love. I was watching it on the airplane. That's my airplane movie. Third time that week. (laughs) It's my airplane movie go to. And. Jonah Bobo is the is the main kid in it. I know. It's so incredible. He's so hyper-talented. And he's so good in it. But it was just funny because you you have talked about him a lot. He's kind I of, love you him. You love him. And I've seen that movie 40 times. Uh-huh. And I had no idea. I was not, I wasn't now I get to put two and two together and I like well, it. Well, you were watching the credits. That's I was watching the credits. Lo- that's how much you love the movie. You were you were actually reading the uh, the yeah, credits. Yeah, because the last song in the movie is "Blood." Oh, by um, Middle East. Yes, so good. That's one of my favorite all time songs. And it's a beautiful end of the movie, and then it goes into the credits. And so I was like, in that. <laughs> So another funny thing that happened on the airplane is that I told Delta, who really didn't really want to watch, she's not, she does, she's like moderate with her TV consumption. It's mm-hmm. not like she asks to watch TV much, but of course, I on the plane, I want her to watch TV for t- eleven hours because I don't want her to start crying. Yeah. And I saw Cheaper by the Dozen was in there, and I told her, "Hey, this was the first movie I was ever in. Aww. I'm in it for about five seconds. Tell me if you can find me." Oh, so then funny. I she she launches into that, and then I'm watching now uh, Squid Games. And I've got my noise-canceling headphones on. So I'm watching the thing, and I don't hear her. I hear you. And I look over, and you're going, answer Delta, because Delta's screaming at the top of her lungs. I was just doing this, like waving my hands to get your attention. attention. Yeah, I thought the the fuselage had broken half or something. (laughs) You look like you you saw a monster on the wing or something. She's screaming. (laughs) I mean, Daddy! 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 I found you! Oh, my God. So I see you flapping your arms like a fucking chicken in the Main Street, doing the chicken dance on Main Street. <laughs> and then you point to Delta, and I look over, and then I take my headphones off. And yes, I hear it full volume, and she has found me, and she's so excited. Aww. It was really funny and cute. That was really And funny. probably horrendously annoying to all the people that were sleeping. Well, I, that was, I was, that's yeah, what my, that was my fear. Yeah, I didn't care, but I was like, uh-oh, there's too yeah. many people who have paid too yeah. much We're money. standing out. We're standing out. We're standing out. We're a tall poppy. <laughs> we are very tall poppy at that point. Maybe the tallest poppy in the airplane was the shortest passenger. <laughs> <laughs> What's your go-to? Do you have a go-to plane movie? I'm not. And I don't know if we talked about this, but I had sent you a meme I read. I saw this and I was like, oh, my God, this is wonderful. This is Monica. And it basically said often people with a lot of anxiety uh, like to watch movies over and over again because they know what's going to happen and that makes them feel safer. Yeah. And I shot it over to you immediately and I was like, oh my God, that is you to a T. like that, yeah. That's like right. during the initial stages of the pandemic and quarantine, you could not <laughs> stop watching Contagion. And then when I thought of it in that framing that it was an anxiety-related thing, it's like, of course, you're terrified of what's happening uh-huh. and you get to live this version where it works out in some way. Although yeah. it doesn't work out that way, well, but you know. For, for my boyfriend, it worked out. And that's, that's all, all we that care matters. about. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if someone gave you a, um, a box that had a big red button on it mm-hmm. and they said to you, if you... Don't hit this button. Matt Damon is going to be killed right now. <gasps> and if you do hit it, Lithuania is going to disappear oh, off the map. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> Sorry, anyone in Lithuania. They're gone. <laughs> Sayonara, suck ass. Listen. Listen. I want you to be honest. Listen. I want you to be honest. Listen. I want you to be honest. Can I can I ask for a favor? Yeah. Can all of the people in Lithuania, can their all their families be in Lithuania at the time? Well, so that everyone dies at the exact same yeah. time? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, then yeah, yeah bye. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then yeah, bye. <laughs> I don't want anyone to suffer. This could pick up some news traction. This is on par with Akdemajad saying that he's going to wipe Israel off the map. For, for my boyfriend. Yeah. They'd have to first learn how committed you are to him to yeah. even understand it. And that's a big ask. <laughs> They'd have to go through like 400 episodes. 2.8 million people. I wouldn't. I'd kill him. But oh. I'd kill myself too. And oh. then we'd be together. Finally. Well, oh my God, that was a test. I didn't even know it was a test. But the right answer would have been uh i'm tribute and then you kill yourself you go i'll kill myself i didn't know that was an option well there, you have to hit the button or not hit the button <laughs> yeah or you're dead <clears throat> okay so then i would hypothesis. die i would die i'd rather die than any of that happen i pray to jesus you wouldn't die over matt damon please tell me of that. course i would what what no i would die <laughs> how much better of a life you want this guy to have he had a fucking storybook life awesome too this is a little more storybook just a little more. I don't think so. He doesn't get to do what we do. Okay. And he has children. And Yeah, they're I... going to be rich. He's going to die and they're going to inherit all that money. No, I'm going to go. You're going to, oh my God. You know, the new movie's out today. What's the new one? With Ben. <gasps> the Last that, Duel. That Ben. Oh, oh, oh. oh. On what? what? On a stream? Oh In theaters. Oh my God. The Ridley Scott. Well, great. Okay. Now I have to fit that into the weekend. Okay. Uh, That's uh, all. The last thing I want to say is oh. I follow Valentino Rossi. Okay. And he posted, I guess it would be a photo dump of he and his, I think either his fiance now or maybe his wife. I don't know. Okay. He's found love. Oh, That's good. what's clear. I and like I think that. this is the first batch of pictures I've ever seen where he's he's outwardly That's nice. celebrating his love. And this woman is, uh, by all accounts, an 11. Okay. And I did not look at her in one of those pictures. Mm. I flipped through and I literally just stared at how cute Valentino Rossi is and how good he looks in these clothes. And God, look how good he looks in a simple white T-shirt and blah, blah, blah. And then my thought was like, you know you're a MotoGP fan if you are straight and you can't even be bothered to look at the 11 because you're just pinholed on Valentino. God, is he cute? What are you going to say? Can, um... You find this problematic, I can feel No, I'm just, I'm... I'm going to ask you a favor. Okay. Well, I don't know if it's worth it. I I wonder if we can move away from the number system. Sure. And still, you can still be effusive, as effusive as you like to be about. Yeah, I'm just looking for a shortcut to point out that this person's a supermodel. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, sure. Okay, so it's just the number because it feels yeah. it feels like I'm I'm. It feels really reductive. Rate rating uh, someone's looks. I understand how you feel that way, and I can leave it at that. But can I tell you how I feel? Is the point I need to make is that she's by all traditional measures flawless. Simply so I can point out that I'd rather look at Valentino. I I get it. So I need to do that. Well, can you just say that? By all traditional measures, okay. she's flawless. Oh, okay. All right. I mean, to me, that's the exact same thing as saying an 11. But It's not. It's not. Okay. I, I'm learning. Yeah, I know. And yeah. I, I, that's why I brought it up because I thought, is it worth it? And, I, and then I'm like, I think it is worth it 
Okay. Can I do it to dudes still? I find that a little less problematic, but I still, I, I think using words is nicer. Okay. All right. I will amend, I will, I will, I will transition away from the numbers. Charlie needs a new nickname then. Yeah. What do we do about Charlie? Well, this is fucking Charlie? brand now. <laughs> well, we might have to leave it because it is his brand. P10C. Did we already tell how funny that story he told was about he was on, he was on vacation and he got recognized? Oh, I don't think we did. No. Oh my God. It's so great. Wait, no, me. I think when he stopped in, when he and Aaron stopped in, I oh, think did we did. We? Yeah, that he was just, he wasn't feeling his best and he hadn't worked out. Oh. And he was, and he said he's, he's feeling much Nine. more like perfect HR. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> perfect HR. Oh, my God. Okay, I love you. Love you. Love you.